So, the, the topic of real change, I think, is a pretty uh, pertinent one coming up through Rosh Hashanah. And when you actually consider the idea of change, and you do a brief look around and see how actually rare real change is. It's very, it's very, very seldom that you see people that alter the course of their lives. I'll give you an example, just in terms of, let's say, um, North American outreach. And when you think about it, it's perfectly understandable. Let's say you've got people who are trying to reach out to students and inform them about Judaism. And they've got a really sophisticated, well-run program, which allows the full gamut of exposure with healthy environment, dynamic people, speakers, the whole works. And if you have a sample group of 100 people, your failure rate for activating or allowing, giving people opportunities and them taking advantage of them to change is 95%. Which means out of the 100 people that you're exposed to, 95 will not be effect affected in any kind of, I mean, you can't measure the effects, but in any kind of life-changing fashion. They may incorporate one thing here, one thing there, but there'll be no major dramatic difference. And I think if we look at ourselves, um, we see that's pretty accurate, that radical change is, is pretty much a rarity. The one exception to this is those of, uh, those of us who, who have become by their and actually have taken steps to change our lives radically. And that's interesting, because that's obviously, that's the exception to the rule. The rule is, you're born one way, you grow up that way, and you die that way. And when you look about it in that context, especially for persons about Shuva, perhaps one doesn't appreciate the, you'd say in Hebrew, the chidush of change. Change is already like, to actually shift, even shifting external things is a big thing, but shifting internal things, changing as a person in a deep and fundamental fashion um, is, is, is very strange. So, it becomes a challenge because with the, with the coming up of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the month of Elul, there's a mitzvah to change. There's actually a mitzvah to change. The mitzvah of tshuva, the Rambam puts it across, is one of the components of the mitzvah of tshuva is Mishane Adam Shmoy. A person should change his name. And the Rambam says, obviously, that doesn't mean literally. If he was called Ruvain, he should now call himself Shimon. There's no right answer. There was no right answer. If you're initially called, it doesn't mean that you have to change your name. It means that you have to say, Kloimar Acherhu. He's someone else. He's not the same person that did the deed in the past. So that's, that's written down in the Rambam, Maimonides, Hilchot Tshuva, meaning that there halachot, there's laws of Tshuva. One of the laws is become someone else. That seems to be a really kind of large request. So, just kind of from exposure, before we get on to, there's a, a very interesting piece over here in the in the Mesilat Yesharim, the famous work of Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Before we get there, I just want to float a few ideas about change. And even in the context of a person that has changed their life 
dramatically like about Shiva. There are certain things which are, seem to be uh, requirements for change. The first thing which seems to be a requirement for change is high forms of motivation. Um, Rabbi Shuel Salanta says that no one changes but from a necessity. In other words, if things are ticking along, you're not going to change. Because, granted, it could be a little bit better. But change is a, is a, it's a wrenching process. There's no way I'm going to do that if the benefit of such change is simply a slightly better life. And when you take a peek into the world of addiction, you see that that's reflected, that the requirement for real movement away from an addiction is what the counselors describe as hitting rock bottom. Hitting rock bottom means that the person gets to a stage where his life is no longer viable. He, get, he loses his job, he gets thrown out of his home. Something happens that makes him, he socially becomes isolated. Something happens that his life as it is, is no longer sustainable. That's the best place. It's the worst place, it's a dark place, it's the best place. Because then there's room for change. But until he hits that point, the most harmful thing that an addict could suffer from is things are ticking over, they're going okay. So you need incredible incentive to change, that's the first point. But that motivation for change has to be so powerful that it's almost as if you cannot carry on living this way. That's the first point of change. The second point of change is if it's tangible, it makes it so much easier. So, for example, when a person changes from a secular to a religious lifestyle, in a way that is an easy change, because it's so quantifiable. Previously, you watched football on, on Saturdays, and now you go to Shul on Shabbos. You can measure it, you can feel it. Previously, you dressed one way, now you're dressing a different way. It's quantifiable, you can feel the change. It's accessible, and since it's accessible and quantifiable, it's easily reachable. Whereas, a deeper kind of change which is a more internal kind of change, is harder to access because you can't really see it. It's not open and visible. If you change the, um, your appreciation of the world around you, it's very subtle. Now you hear the birds with a slightly different sensitivity. Now you see the sunlight with a slightly different gaze. It's hard to measure and it's hard to... So you need a necessity to change and theoretically the best kind of change would be a open and visible change, but when we speak about shiva, very often in terms of external um, stuff, we're okay. It's the internality of our being that becomes problematic. So that's, uh, that's another challenge to change. The first challenge is that we need to have a necessity. The second challenge is it's hard to do it when it's not quantifiable. Um, I think there's a, there's a third, cha third challenge to change and that is that it's very difficult to change without an external plausibility structure. So I want to change. And let's say I'm all gung-ho for it. And let's say I feel a burning desire to do so. And I'm happy to do so even though it's not fully quantifiable. And I've got a social group that supports me. It's amazing. Take away the social group. So say, for example, your social environment isn't really thinking about fundamental change right now. It's ill but they're more interested in, in other things. And now you're going to kind of try to innovate. 
So what happens when you try to innovate? So you want to, as an example, try to speak less Losh and Hora. So if you're surrounded by a group of people that are all working on what comes out of their mouth, it's amazing. You go to coffee and everyone's careful what they say about anyone else. If you're not surrounded by those people, so then you go to coffee and like it's, it's, it gets to the stage where you, know, you see many people putting their fingers in their ears and going, ma, 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 ma. No, you don't, you don't. I'm joking. I haven't seen that. Um, so, so basically, I just wanted to maybe present those challenges and then, and then walk out and say, well, okay, well, I tried. You know. Obviously, real change is beyond us. But I just wanted to, to, to make it real. that it, It's a real thing, real change. Um, so let's begin, let's go back to the first. The first challenge of change is there's no necessity to change. And this becomes a, a really um, powerful presentation of how we define ourselves. If you think about it in the following way. Rosh Hashanah is a climactic point of the year. If a person is spiritually in touch, it's a point of the year where actually the idea of Rosh Hashanah means the world is almost, Hashem looks down and he says, okay, am I going to recreate a world which is going to like pan out in the year to come? It's not that the world has an assumption of continuity. The world is no assumption of continuity. Rosh Hashanah is a reinvention of the world in its entirety. And the idea is that, well, when this world is reinvented, what kind of world is reinvented? And the call to us on Rosh Hashanah is, do we want to be part of a world which is aligned to Hashem's vision? I could illustrate it with, uh, with an analogy. Imagine you have two, two men, we'll call one James Wilson, we'll call another... Bob Smith and James and Bob both highly qualified. They both got their degrees from Wharton Business School and they've had extensive work experience and they both want to do something a little bit different. And they're peeking through, you know, they're checking their LinkedIn account and they see there's a job going, you know, they both live in, in New York City and there's a job, a fancy, a fancy company has been given a government grant to do a project of, sorry, a project of <laughs> urban, urban renewal in an, a rural African country. And they both are kind of fascinated by the, the exotic nature of the jobs and they say, okay, well, let's give it a bash. So they both, uh, they both apply and they both get called in for, for an interview and they happen to be one after another. And you have James and you have Bob and James is the first one to be called into the CEO's office and he tells James, he says, listen, pleased to meet you, I looked at your credentials, very impressive. Let me tell you a little bit about the job. And James says, okay, I'm interested to hear. And he describes that there's like a really deserted African country. There's a lot of disease and there's, there's no infrastructure. There's no hospitals. There's no schools. And they want to like start from scratch and put in roads and put in electricity. It's going to be amazing. So like James nods. He sounds great. He says, tell me, what's the salary package like? CEO tells him the salary. He says, great. Is it going to be like a medical insurance program as well? What about car allowance, school fees? He gives him the whole package. He looks at the package. He says, this sounds really, really exciting. I'm, 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 I'm up for it. So the CEO shakes hand. Look, James, you know, there are other applicants, but we'll be happy to consider it. You're certainly kind of very qualified. And he says goodbye. In walks Bob. And the CEO starts to describe the project. 
And Bob's eyes light up. He goes, what? He says, you mean you're not going to go in there? You've got the funds to go in there. He's like, change this place around? He goes, yeah. He says, you mean you're just putting in like roads and the whole like proper modern infrastructure? He says, this is amazing. This is the incredible project. This is, I would love to be a part of this. And the CEO says, you know, don't worry. There's like, there's a package. He says, whatever. And he says, you know, you've got insurance. He says, okay, whatever. I mean, as long as I can get by it. This is amazing. This is real. So, of course, who gets hired? Bob. Bob gets hired. Funnily enough, there was a simultaneous project, which was also advertised at the same time. Almost the identical thing in a neighboring African country. And this time, there's no, there's no Bob, so James gets a job. So, as would have it, James and Bob land up on the same plane, heading out of JFK to this African country. And they, they land up sitting next to each other. And they discover that they, you know, they recognize each other from meeting in the office. And they discover they're actually both on, on, on the route to do exactly the same thing. So they share ideas and strategies. They land, they say, child to each other. And James goes his way and Bob's his. And they're both very good at what they do. And their projects go ahead and extremely successful. In um, record time, the roads are, are laid, electricity, schools, trained medical professionals are put in, teachers are put in. And you can imagine just the kind of the joy and the jubilation of the, of the population. They, all of a sudden, they see like potential and future for their lives. And the day comes when the project is finished and uh, the president allows James and Bob respectively to cut the ribbon, ribbons and they say farewell and they land up, strangely, coincidentally, on the same plane going back to JFK. And as they're traveling in the air, they don't know this, but both of these countries are along a fault line and there hasn't been an earthquake in over 300 years. But there was one that night. And both projects are laid completely to waste, destroyed. All that remains is rubble. They don't know. They're busy happily flying in the sky. And they arrive back at JFK and they turn in their phones. And both have a message from their respective CEOs. And James is the first one to answer, to listen to his message, and he has a CEO's voice, and the voice says, sorry to do this to you, but there has been a calamity, and as a result, the project has been destroyed. And uh, James is a little bit shocked, and the CEO says, don't worry, we are insured, and your salary will, will be covered, it won't affect you in any way. And James kind of says, okay, you know, well, you know, no one's fault. And he moves on towards passport control. And Bob um, picks up the message from the CEO and he listens and he goes, what? No! No! And he quickly checks on his phone, he checks the news and he sees, he sees the pictures of this like, debris and he goes, no, no, no. And he actually sits in the airport screaming. People think he's gone crazy. He says, no, no, no. Part one of the story. What made Bob break down was the fact that he was invested in the project. He wasn't there for a salary. 
he was invested in the project. He realized that there was something valuable going on. And because of his investment, because of his commitment to the value of the project, so he was able to, he was broken. Whereas James was committed to his salary. He did a good job. But whether the project succeeded or failed didn't really make much of a difference to him. He's going to get paid anyway. So now, this is the first call. Do we have a necessity for change in our life? Let's kind of take an, an overview of the world. We look at a world, and we look at a project, and we look at an employer. And let's assume that what Rosh Hashanah is, is it's this job interview that Hashem is calling out to us, and he's saying to us, would you like to be part of this project that I have? I have this, this master plan. The Jewish people are going to carry the torch of enlightenment, of justice, of godliness in the world. Would you like to be part of that project? And what is our response? So one of the frustrating things people who, who aren't aware of this idea come across in, in the Rosh Hashanah davening is there's actually no space for me. Where do I get to a point where I, have to, I can ask for my personal requests? Keep on looking. Assuming <laughs> there's like 3,000 pages left, that's what it seems like. There has to be like one little thing over here. You go, have you ever seen like, you know, like everyone, everyone, I think we should like, there should definitely be some study on it. Like people like do it differently and then feel this way or... If I turn the pages at this pace, the service will go faster. I'm sure like, they're all like invented rituals that people have. And then you think, that small writing, I'm sure I'll skip that. And <laughs> so, but if you look and you, you open it up from the first page and you go to the last page, maybe there's a little bit in Tashlich, you can squeeze it in there. But there's nothing. What is there? It's all about this vision of this world. The Cholarisha Kula Kaashan Wickedness will disappear like smoke. And the evil empire will disappear. And Hashem will rule <coughs> completely in every aspect. Now, the question is, what are you feeling when you're saying those words? So it really depends what you're in it for. If you're spiritually engaged for selfish reasons, which means that your relationship to Hashem hasn't evolved to the degree where it's give and take. In other words, you can have a relationship to Hashem, which is a purely taking relationship. And I think that's like, you know, a mother and, and a child, a mother and a baby, have a very loving relationship. But it's a very one-way relationship. I don't know, I've never, I've never asked uh, uh, like a six-month-old. But I don't imagine that like before the six-month-old considers crying at two o'clock in the morning, it goes through this moral struggle. Mommy's sleeping. She's had a really hard day. There's other kids to take care of. Let me just hold it in for a bit longer. The response is, I'm hungry, I cry. I want sleep, I cry. When I want this, I cry. Now, that's, that's a beautiful relationship. It's very fulfilling for the mother. But for, in some ways, but for, for, the, for the child, it's, it's, it's extremely one way. There's no... There's no there's no give and take. It's take, 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 give, 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 give. We can have a relationship 
with Hashem like that. And, and, and it can work. It can definitely work. Um, you can... And this is an interesting thing as well about uh, relationship with Hashem without access to what Hashem wants. In other words, let's say a person wants to develop a relationship with God and all he has is himself to do so. So how does that relationship develop? Well, it develops kind of, God, I, I realize that you're present everywhere and when something good happens, that was amazing, thank you. And you say lots of thank yous. But you can't move beyond it. Because you have no idea what, what, what Hashem wants. You have no idea what He's about. You have no idea how to respond to His, as it were, needs or wants. So the growth in a relationship with Hashem is when you're able to, instead of saying, what am I getting out of this? Rather you're saying, what am I giving to this? And the way it can become very tangible is you look around at the world and you say, what would Hashem feel like if you looked around at this world? Knowing the values and the, the morals and the insights that the Torah is so full of, looking around, how would you feel about that? Would you feel um, successful in his endeavor? Would you feel that the, the, the business is bankrupt? And there's that... The project has been raised to the ground. So if it has, how do I respond to that? How do I kind of try to rebuild? Or, or maybe it just doesn't interest me. Because I feel like I've got my minion, I'm doing my stuff, I say brochas very loudly, and, and uh, I don't know, whatever I do, I do my stuff, I shockle. Shockling is a very important part of Jewish practice. Sometimes, you know, you see this Bochum and the kind of the, the, the record SPM I've seen, shockers per minute. <laughs> I mean, I've, seen, I've seen guys who get up to 300 and it's like, there's a certain point when it actually becomes dangerous. If they're too close to a wall, it can be really kind of fatal sometimes. So you have to, uh, but you don't understand, there's more to religiosity than the shockle. Um... Yeah, you can mispronounce that way as well. So, okay, so so what is it? What is it that you could you could, or you could say there's no there's 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 this whole world, this deep as it were mind of Hashem, where I'll be able to understand what He wants and respond, and then transformation in the relationship. All of a sudden, it becomes two way. It's not my focus is in, well, thank you for this, and I got this, and I need this, and I want this, and I got this, and I need this, and I want this, and I'm happy to say thank you. I'm very happy to say thank you. I'm grateful. But that gratitude doesn't spill over into, and now I'm going to do something for you. Rather, it's thanks for everything you're giving me. How about giving me some more? Thank you for that as well. How about some more? Where's the response? So I'm not talking in terms of guilt, obligation. I'm talking relationship. Where's a two-way relationship? So now, when the Ram, Rambam ends his his prokim on tshuva, he's got ten chapters on tshuva. And in the last chapter, he describes the goal of where tshuva should reach. True tshuva. True, true tshuva, the Maharal says in a different way, he says, true tshuva is going back to Hashem. We think about tshuva as beating yourself on the chest and thinking about all the terrible things you've done. Nothing to do with it. The role, that's interesting how, what role that plays. Very interesting. The, but that's not the point. The point is, Hashem, to go back to Hashem. 
So when the Rambam describes that point of relationship, it's almost absurd the amount of adjectives that he uses. He speaks about Shiva. And he speaks about the love that you have to have for Hashem. And he says, how does that love look? He said, What does this fitting love look? He said, That person should love Hashem. Love. Then he adds in the word, Great. A great love. You'd think it stopped there. Goes on. Rabba, enormous. Think that would be enough. Azar, strong. Think it would be enough. Yesera, excessive. Goes on. Admaoid. Keeps on going. Adjective after adjective after adjective. There's kind of this bond. He says, until a person is like someone who's lovesick, that they can't stop thinking about the other person when they sit down, when they wake up, when they're eating, when they're drinking. It's, that's it completely, completely governs their waking moments. So now, if we think about change in shiva, these are some of the concepts that we have to start to reconsider. If we view our Judaism as ritual practice or getting big brownie points in the sky, and every time we do something we get a tick, and every time we do something we get a cross... So there's no real motivation to change because nothing is really fundamentally going wrong. You're right. I did some bad stuff. I did lots of good stuff. If that's the point, so then we're, we don't have the necessary criterion for change, which is necessity. It's just not there because I'm doing okay. If okay is playing by the rules. But if it's about a relationship, so then there's something tragic that's going on. How many times a day do I forget about Avo, Azo, Gudoyle, Yusera, Admoid? Forget about those descriptions of this lovesickness that we're meant to experience. But how many times a day do I actually think about Hashem? I mean, so you say, what do you mean? Uh, you know, I pray. Okay, so what happens when you pray? So again, apart from focusing, focusing on your shock or form, because again, apart from speed, it's also about form and rhythm. You don't, you don't want to do like the, 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 the jolting shackle. You want to do the smooth, getting it. So very often, very often, when you're praying, it's, it's like you pray because you prayed, because you prayed, because you will pray, because you did pray. You wake up in the morning, and if you're a man, you have some vague notion of the fact that you feel like your arm is tight. So I feel like my arms, oh, I'm putting on toilet. You, there's... You can go through an entire day of religious procedures which are completely godless. They don't, have a, they don't have a sense of connection. They have a sense of performance. You think, okay, I have to go and I have to, I have to knock that one out. So, okay, you, okay, shachrit's down. But eat the Weetabix? Mm, there's something in the way. A brocha. Said the brocha, boom, I'm over that hurdle. Oh my gosh, I didn't have to send after brocha. Say the after brocha. I'm over that hurdle. Where, where did God go from the religion? So if you look at the Jewish code of law, and you look at the first halacha, the very first halacha, begins with the words that are more adds in, Shivisi Hashem Negdi Samid, putting Hashem in front of me constantly, Zeklal Godl, Umal HaSatzadikim. This is the thing. This is actually what it's all about. The word mitzvah is a very strange word. As opposed to the common translation, which is commandment, that's a mistranslation. Mitzvah doesn't mean commandment. Tzivui is commandment. Mitzvah is a, 
form of noun which is comparable to mishpat, which means judgment. That form of noun is when you have a shofet, a judge, and a nishpat, a judged, and the, the, the combination of those two things coming together is called a mishpat, a judgment. So what a mitzvah is, is when you have a mitzvah, a commander, and a mitzvah, a commanded, and when they sink, that's called a mitzvah. And that's why the Shlua Kodesh says that the word of mitzvah is from the word savta, which means togetherness. A mitzvah is a way of bonding me to Hashem. So now if you think about it, we need to hit rock bottom. That's our goal. <laughs> Sounds like a miserable goal. We need to hit rock bottom. So the question is like this, well, you know, what happens if we don't have the benefit of being an alcoholic? <laughs> this is going to be really hard. How are we going to get to the point where my life is not sustainable? So the best thing is follows. And this is like the direction that the Baile Musa would go. Is It's because we have to raise the bottom. The reason why we're not hitting rock bottom is because our bottom is way too low. We don't have a realization of what we're missing out on. So therefore, we form a vision of life which is satisfied with mediocrity. And the people that lose out the most, of course, are ourselves. And the truth is, that state of mediocrity is is really, really sad. But it's, it's workable unless we lift up the bar. Meaning as follows. We're okay. We're doing good. Nothing wrong. But we don't know what we're missing out on. When you, when you read some of the descriptions of the ecstatic pleasure and the fulfillment and the depth and the engagement in fact, you don't just look at the historical perspective of the Jewish people. And any of you have studied the works of, let's say, either the later commentators, the Achronim, the Rishonim, you have the most incredibly powerful, deeply thought out, either whether it be in the, in the world of Musa, in the world of Halacha, ingenious, beautifully scripted poems, works, while these things were happening, these people were under dire conditions. They were suffering intensely. But what comes out from their work is this kind of this ecstatic pleasure. In other words, despite the hardships, they were living in a different realm. When you hear the Orachayim discuss what it would mean when a person, he said, if a person would know, would be able to tap into the sweetness of Torah, because of the ecstatic pleasure he had experienced, he'd probably lose his mind. So, in other words, we have become used to living a life which is really dreary. And I'm not saying that any of your lives, are, and I know you all look like that right now, but I'm pretty sure that your lives are nearly as dreary as you look. In other words, you're, you've, got, you've got excitement, you've got pleasure, you've got relationships, things are going okay. And you're 100% right, they are. But that's because there's a whole different dimension, a whole different dimension that we haven't experienced. And until you experience it, so it's almost as if it doesn't exist. So now, let's rephrase the predicament of tshuva. We need to change. When we see that our life is unsustainable, we'll change. When your life is unsustainable, you can change. When things can go no further where they're going, you can change. The problem is, we don't see into that reality. Um, this is where the Ramchal starts to speak about it, and he says, you know, if you think, 
he goes through amazing, amazing people, giants of Judaism, and how they were concerned that they missed out on life. People like you think, well, who, who? Abraham? Yosef? Um, in the world of the Tanaim, Rabbi Yochanan? All of them were concerned that there was a, they were concerned. The Ramchal is doing this, doing this to awaken us to the idea that there's a dimension of life that unless we change fundamentally, we're not going to, we're not going to get there. So now I'll, I'll show it to you how I experienced internally this, uh, this process. So I have a, and maybe we'll, we'll speak about that a little bit. One of the things I love to do is talk to myself. Um, engage in what's called an internal dialogue. Now, talking to yourself is, is an old Jewish custom. It's an old Jewish custom. The only thing that Jews do more than talk to themselves is complain to themselves. But talking to yourself the, was actually a fundamental part of the, the Musa school. You have to learn to talk to yourself. And I'll discuss briefly the two characters that should engage in that discussion. We all engage on some level whether it's, uh, we're aware of it or not, in some kind of self-talk. Generally, the way we process the voices inside of our heads, I don't mean in a psychotic kind of way, um, is we've got this tug of war between the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Hora, and the one saying this, and the other one saying that, and the one saying, lay in bed, and the other one saying, get up, and the one saying, don't say those words, and the other one saying, shut up. But... The truth is, that's not a dialogue. That's just a, that's a war. I want to engage in internal dialogue. So who can I call if it's a dialogue? It's not a monologue. I want to call on two characters, two personas inside of me to participate in this dialogue. So who should they be? So many of the different works, it's, it's spelled out explicitly in the duties of the heart, the Chavis of Vavis. He says, there's a discussion between two pure parts of yourself. Your soul is divided into what's called the intellect and the emotion, the head and the heart. Your soul. Your soul has an intellectual, rational, insight, far-sighted part, and it has an experiential, gushing, passionate part. Both those parts are purely directed towards the good. There's another part of yourself, which is called your negative side, your... Um, animalistic side. Animalistic not in times of base and evil, but in times of that it's interesting in, in, in grazing in this world. In the, fin- in, the, in the finality and the material of, not, not bad, not plunder and pillage, but it's interested in the here and now for the here and now. Eat to give yourself nutrition. Um work to sustain yourself. In other words, this world. It's not transcendent. It's mundane. That's one part of yourself. The other part of yourself is completely transcendent, wants eternity, wants to connect to something above and beyond, searches meaning. You've got these two parts. Each of those two parts of self have an intellect and an emotion. However, the way that the intellect and the emotion interact differs greatly. 
in the animal side of self, because an animal is an animal, primarily he's engaged in the worlds of sensory perception. So what happens is, it begins with stimulus, with feeling, with emotional experience, and that generates a thought process. Someone does something to you, you get angry, and then all of a sudden you come up with an ingenious plot how you can trip them as they walk down the step. It requires geometry and all kinds of sophisticated stuff which gets you going. In other words, but that's really your head in the service of your animalistic tendencies. So it goes from, from beneath to above. The soul is connected to a higher place. Spiritually ethereal. But what it can do is you can bring it down into the world of experience. That's the direction of what's called the internal dialogue. So in the internal dialogue, um, there's a, we'll call the, 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 the seichel, the mentor, and we'll call the nefesh, the pupil, the student. So you've got this inner mentor, inner guide, and the inner student. And they can really, and I recommend you engaging in these dialogues, that's the real you. The other stuff is just a, is just a, a, just a distraction so that you can that your internal dialogue, that your struggle in this world will be meaningful. So now, um, I was having this discussion with myself, and you can have lots of discussions with yourself. You know, you could have it on a very simplistic level, uh, your, and either one can start the discussion. It could be your mentor says, tell me um, why, you, why you're going for a second helping of ice cream, and uh, the inner student says, because I want it. It tastes good. And the mentor says, but is it really going to do anything for you productive? And then the inner student who wants to do the right thing says, no, not really. But I really am attracted to it. So the inner mentor says, okay, well, what do you want to do about it? So the student says, you tell me. You're the brains in this family. And you, you get involved in this discussion. So I was, having this, I was trying to be honest with myself and saying, when I read the Rambam's description, of this connection to Hashem, which is 24-7, like someone is lovesick, my initial reaction is, mm, mm, no thank you. I'd rather not. I just don't want to have that dark intensity. I'd much rather have like a little bit of space for myself. I once heard the most shocking drosh I've ever heard. I've never, I don't think, you know, I don't think I've ever heard a rabbi say something so against Judaism. This rabbi was giving a drosh to a bar boy, and it was in Parshas Nach, and he said, you know, it says in the Pasuk, V'yishkom ba'al Hashem, Hashem will dwell in the tents of shame. And he says the word dwell, V'yishkom, comes, comes from the word shachain, which means neighbor. He says, you have to realize, boy, Hashem is your neighbor. He needs a good neighbor. He doesn't intrude when you want to invite him in. I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I wonder if we belong to the same religion. Because in my religion, it's like something completely different about how you should relate to God. So, but that would be like quite a convenient version of God, like the Superman God. Isn't the Superman God great? Like he's, he's, like, he's like floating around in the sky, and when you really need him, whoosh, swoops down and saves you. That would be wonderful. But like God's around all the time. And quite, it's quite frankly, it's, it's rather uncomfortable. I'd rather like carve out a little bit of space and time for myself. So when I thought about this, I, I engaged in eternal dialogue. So I said to, said to my to myself, what, what makes you like so freaked out by the fact that, that you'd have this um, presence of Hashem? You'd be totally in awe of this God consciousness constantly. So I'd say, well, it's not like really what I'm into. 
So then, you know, the words you say back, but you're a rabbi. I said, shut up. So, um, so, so then, we have to take engage. And then I, through this discussion, I actually came to an amazing realization. The realization I came to is that my identity is locked up in the, long, in, the wrong, in the wrong place. My identity is essentially more of a physical being than a spiritual being. And therefore, when you offer me unadulterated spirituality, I say, ooh, that's a little bit freaky. Meaning, I, would, I need some physicality that's too, that's, that's too much. So now I have to go through this process of saying, well, one second, what are you actually doing in life? And engaging myself in a very open, honest, and confrontational fashion about what am I actually here for? And that's when the internal dialogue starts to produce incredible fruit. Now, I'm not saying that now the idea is immensely attractive to me, but now I'm starting to say, well, okay, when are there times when you've experienced the pleasure of closeness, of intimacy? And what does that feel like? So I, I can think and conjure up in my mind many times of intim- intimacy and closeness, and I say, that feels really good. So then I can say to my inner child, my inner student, wouldn't you like to have more of that? I say, I would. Well, okay, but you know, you have to invest in a relationship to get that. Well, tell me what I have to do. Well, is all the stuff that's blocking that relationship. Boom. Yeah, now we get on to the, 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 the point of tshuva in terms of actions that I've done and I'd like to undo. Okay? So there's all the stuff that, you know, you can't have a relationship with, with a person where you're constantly stabbing them in the back. So, ah, you know, you, you have a great relationship, but, you know, when... When they're not around, you're doing all these things which are completely contrary to what they want. So that, that doesn't really work. So you have, to f- you have to figure out how you're going to conduct this relationship, which then becomes the whole sugya, the whole, the whole notion of mitzvot and averot, of mitzvot and averot. And then you can start to engage, engage, engage in that dialogue until you can talk yourself through and you start to say, well, you, you're right. It's, like, it's inappropriate for me to kind of seek this intimacy, but at the same time, like just not paying attention to things which Hashem has really kind of requested of me. And ultimately, for my own good. He's not, he's not out there to get me. So, well, okay, so let me just kind of think about that and engage in that discussion. And then through that process, so then you can start to, to raise rock bottom. Until the goal is that you get to a point, and whether it be overall or in a small area, until you get to the point where you think, okay, in this area, I feel like I need to move forward. And in this area, I feel like I need to move forward. And then those small sparks become accumulative in their power, and they create a momentum until I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it will create a point where I say to myself, I just can't go to a, I just can't say another tefillah, which is just like uh, a murmuring of words. I just can't do that anymore. I just, that's not sustainable for me. I can't just put on tefillah and feel like I'm wrapping black leather boxes on the arm. I, I just can't go for that anymore. I need to get to a place which is deep and more fundamental than that. And that, I think, is the, the point of change. Um, and that's, when you do that, so you've raised your, your, your rock bottom. And what happens is when you raise your rock bottom, the second point we said is the quantifiability of it all. When you, when you develop that sensitivity, so the small change, you know, when you become, when you become attuned to anything, if, you, if you've been listening to music for a long time, you start to pick up subtleties. And if you're really good at it, 
one wrong note is jarring. If you never listen to music, it's like, it all sounds the same. But when you become more sophisticated, so then small things, which initially were not felt, become pronounced to the nth degree. So as you progress on your <coughs> spiritual journey, going further and further, so then subtle things, which previously may have missed, become loud and blaring. And then the second point of change, the first point of change is the unsustainability of my life becomes apparent, and then the changes become obvious. And that's a, a strategy for Chuva. So the topic tonight was real change. And that's what real change is one, perhaps, approach to real change. Now, I wish I could click my fingers and say, okay, there you go. You came to this uh, now 44-minute long share. We only have another 44 minutes to go, so don't worry. <laughs> we'll be over. Um, but obviously, in 44 minutes, you can't... Uh, not only do 95% of attempts at trying to get people to change fail... Of those 5% that succeed, the investment that it requires is $100,000 per person. So, you know, I'm hoping that this is going to affect each and every one of you. And consider how cheap it could be. <laughs> Small amount of electricity. I mean, I'm sure that those, the coffee costs a bit. But relatively speaking, I think... Uh, I think we could have a really good investment ahead of us. Um, change for free. So I think that's something to, to think about. In other words, this internal dialogue I really think is a I really think is 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 a is a big win. I think it's something which can which can create a different way of a different sense of self-awareness, a different connection to ourself. Because until we are self-aware, we cannot be in touch with Hashem. It's impossible. Because your relation with Hashem will be some kind of projection because you had a bad time with your father or something else. If you really want to be in touch with yourself, internal dialogue creates the openness, the honesty to see yourself and see where you're really holding and then you can move forward. So it's... Uh, that's, that's what I have to say. Uh, do any of you have any questions? I don't know if I've got it right. So Go for it. Let's clarify. On the discussion at, on Sunday at Yeshiva, not with you. I'm not responsible if it wasn't with me. Okay, it wasn't with you, but it was a discussion and an argument about the deed, being a slave of Hashem. And at least someone was here at the same discussion, and it was about a Muna. That you, it's the deed you've got to start off with at being a slave of Hashem and not the Kavona. And my understanding of some of what you've discussed tonight is about the Kavona, not only the deed. 100%. So now I'm totally confused. Good. Now you know it feels like to be in the Shiva. <laughs> did I misunderstand You didn't misunderstand it. I did. You, no, you did not. So then explain what's the difference. So there's, there's, there's two levels. There's a basic level of that you have to become part of the program. Part of the program is you have to do. So that's the deed. That's the deed. So you do the deed without the kabon, at least you're doing the deed. You're in the program. You've joined the program. Once you're part of the program, so then you can, 
think, okay, but I'm part of the program. What happens next? What happens next is now you have a framework wherein you can discover that relationship. That framework is a prerequisite. I'll give you an analogy. It's not only about Judaism. Okay? I've been practicing Tai Chi for the last 18 years. And I'm still practicing. I practiced on Sunday. And you practice on Sunday. <laughs> so whenever anyone asks you how your Tai Chi is going, the standard answer is slowly. So when you, when you practice Tai Chi, you do it for 18 years, but the truth is, the first thing I teach you is the form. You have to learn the form. When you first start practicing the form, it's just like literally it's following instructions. The teacher says, I want you to move from your center. You say, what are you talking about? I move my hands from my hands. He says, no, no, you have to move from your center. You have no idea what he's talking about. And he tells you the form, and you actually, all you're doing is you're mimicking him, but there's no meaning, there's no depth. There's no, but if you don't do that ever, you'll never get anywhere. Step number one, there's 630 mitzvahs, do them. Now you're in the program. Now that you're in the program, you say to myself, but I feel disconnected, I feel it's empty, I feel it's by road. Great. Don't stop. Now invest that with meaning. That's called shuva. Okay? Um, it's two different levels. The baseline level, of course, is you have to be part of the program. Of course, of course. Otherwise it doesn't start. Once you're there, so then you can start. That makes sense. Thank you. Okay, good. You're lucky. If you'd be a shiva bocha, they would have taken two weeks for me to tell you that. <laughs> Any other questions? Did everyone get that? Was that? Was that? I think it's pretty coherent. I mean, you have to like, practice this internal dialogue, and generally you should be careful. You know, if you're in a shiva, it's perfectly socially acceptable to talk to yourself. <laughs> to like, to like, you can even argue with yourself. You ever been in a shiva? So apart from the fact that you get people screaming in each other's faces. We just get people walking up. And that's like completely acceptable. So you can get away with murder when you shiver, but I don't know if that would go well. Well, like if you're at work and you start having like a fear, but you don't understand what I meant by that was, and like the people. But the truth is, if you actually want to solve that problem, just like put an earpiece on, or like hold your phone. But what do you think about this? And then you can get away with murder as well. Um, Okay, so that's, that's what I have to share. And um, so I hope that, that to a certain degree we can all take that on board a little bit. And in preparation for Rosh Hashanah, we can think about it. Rosh Hashanah is a point of time where we can say to Hashem, listen, you know, I had this discussion with myself and I actually want to buy into the program. I, I, like, I like this this kind of vision for the world. I want to be a part of it and this is what I want to contribute. The end. <laughs>